So today we start on chapter two. We started a series last week called What in God's Earth is the Kingdom of Heaven? Uh, we are going to do section one of this is going to be 14 chapters. Some chapters may take two uh, Sunday morning sessions of 40 minutes to, uh, to get through. So there might be a chapter 7a and 7b or something like that. But today is chapter two, What in God's Earth is the Kingdom of Heaven? which the series is named after. This is kind of the focal point. Uh, then the answer to that is the kingdom defined. We're going to define what the Bible means by the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven, which, as we made clear last week, is the central theme of all Scripture. If you're looking for a list of the 14 uh, messages, look on the, at the end of the backside of page 2 here, and you'll see all 14 chapters that are going to come. Then after we finish those 14 chapters, we're going to go back and take each chapter again as a series in itself. So what I'm trying to do on this first time through is hit sort of the surface of these issues, what you might call a survey. Like if you, when you uh, study history, uh, let's say you go to the collegiate level of studying history and, and maybe go on like I did to a master's degree in history, you might take in your freshman year, you take uh, history classes that are called surveys. And, uh, I, I laugh now because they, with this new semester format, they make, say, if you're taking Western history, they make from uh, prehistoric times and the rise of Western civilizations in the approximately 3000 BC all the way to approximately the Renaissance and the Reformation is uh, the first survey class. I'm like, yeah, you're covering all that in, uh, in uh, one semester. That is definitely a survey, uh, not... Uh, Certainly not uh, going very detailed with it. So then you might go on to, uh, on the three or 400 level, take a class on the Renaissance or take a class on the Reformation or ancient Greece or something like this. So that's kind of what we're going to be doing with this Kingdom of God series. We're going to do a survey for 14 chapters, then go back and look at each chapter in more detail. Now, our theme verse in Roman numeral one there is your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We always have said that God would never have us primarily be praying for something that should not be also our goal that we're working towards as Christians. So in essence, Jesus is saying right in the center of his, of his Sermon on the Mount, his basic teaching of what it means to be a disciple, to be a father, follower of Christ, we are supposed to be praying for and working for his kingdom coming in such a way that his will is done on earth as it is already perfectly done in heaven. Now, that means right from the beginning that our today's popular notions of what the kingdom of heaven is are way off base because if you survey Christians, what is the kingdom of heaven? Most will say it has something to do with going to heaven after you die or after the second coming of Christ. And it probably does contain that as a small subset of what it's all about. But that is missing the mark totally. Uh, others would say, well, it's the unfolding of God's plan of redemption or God's plan of salvation throughout the scriptures. And some might even say that has something to do with the progressive unveiling of who Christ is. Well, that's definitely a couple steps in the right direction, but still mixing the, missing the big per picture. Now, on the days that Jesus walked to the earth, what's called his first advent, his first coming, uh, 
most of God's people, the Jewish people living both within Israel, northern part Galilee and Judea, plus uh, the Jews that came from, that were still dispersed throughout the nations, but that would often come to Israel to visit during various uh, of the three major annual holidays. They, any of them would have said, well, the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God uh, has to do with bringing God's kingdom here and now. And in that sense, they had a big, uh, they were more directed toward the right answer. However, they were still missing it. We're going to look at what mystery means today. But they were still miss, missing it because the kingdom of God was a mystery that they weren't understanding. And they were looking for a geopolitical kingdom such as they had in the days of David and Solomon to be restored by a geopolitical messiah bringing a cataclysmic event or bringing armies to throw the Romans out. And it, that mentality was so pervasive that in Acts chapter 1, verse 6 and 7, the disciples, after three and a half years of teaching from Jesus that that was not what the kingdom of heaven is about, and after seeing him resurrected just before he's ascended, they ask him, Lord, is it at this time that you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? They totally missed the whole point in that question. They think that Jesus is going to restore the nation of Israel to a geopolitical kingdom. Now, if you study uh, Protestant evangelical eschatology, as it emerged in the late 1800s, and became totally dominant by 1920s, so that most Protestant Christians don't even know there are any other alternatives, even though that was a completely newfangled idea. But it was a return to the Jewish idea that Jesus is going to come, he's going to step on the Mount of Olives, he's going to split it in two, all the nations are going to come politically under his dominion, and Israel is going to be the major nation with Jesus reigning as king. And that has nothing to do with what the Bible is about, even though 95% of evangelicals believe that idea today. Uh, I would encourage you to read a book by Paul Thigpen, who is a former evangelical who became a Roman Catholic and wrote a book called The Rapture Trap, where he just exposes how unbiblical that whole idea is and that it has nothing to do with what the church taught in the first few centuries, nor the Middle Ages, nor during the time of the Reformation. It's a completely modern idea. And it always arises in the hearts and minds of God's people when there's a time of great dryness. Remember, after Malachi in 396 BC, there was no word from the Lord until the word of the Lord that came to Zechariah that he was going to be the father of John the Baptist. There was uh, approximately 350-some years of no prophet, no revelation. God's people had an external form of religion. They went to synagogue. They did the liturgy. However, they didn't know the Lord. And their expectations became, therefore, humanistic, natural-minded, and shallow. And they missed the purpose and heart of God in Scripture altogether, although most of them had memorized more than you could ever imagine. Hebrew boys were required to memorize at least the first five books by the time they were 12. And most Hebrew girls did it too. And the ones who wanted positions with the better rabbis memorized the whole of what we would call the Old Testament. So they knew the scripture, 
But as Jesus said to the Pharisees, this is the reason you're mistaken. You do not know the scriptures, nor the power of God. Isn't that amazing? He's talking to people who know their Bibles way more than anybody in this room ever will. And he says, you don't know the Bible because you don't know the power of God. So uh, the kingdom of God, uh, his will being done on earth as it is in heaven, is something for now. It's not something only for the future. It is both now and the future. So our, my, correction, my encouragement is to please read the whole Bible and, and look for this. We, today, the idea in Christian circles is to have our preconceived ideas and find various proof texts for our thoughts. But that misses the point. If the Bible, of course the Bible, on the, from a natural level, if you study the doctrines of plenary inspiration, you understand that God worked through men. On one level, it was written through 40 different men on three different continents over 2,000 years. But the doctrine of the plenary inspiration of Scripture on, says that God totally controlled that process to the point of creating the personalities and the time periods and the cultures of the people who wrote it in such a way that it is his inerrant, without error, perfect word. And so if you read, you know, we, we would never expect that we could read a novel or a history book um, by one author and not have it have one theme all the way through. Even if you read, uh, if you have enough, uh, I don't know if you're, if you're uh, a masochist enough to read Victor Hugo's Les Miserables all the way through, and you, you understand it's like 800 pages, and that he goes off on politics and social justice issues for like two and 300 pages at a time. <laughs> Nevertheless, it's all because of his one theme about social injustice. So don't expect to read the Bible without looking for one prevailing, undergirding theme that interweaves through every page. That's just not a proper way to read any book, let alone God's book. Now let's get into today's stuff. The, chapter 2, what in God's earth is the kingdom of heaven? I'm going to define the kingdom with 12 statements, but these are more of a collage or a mosaic uh, in other words, I don't know that they're exactly in the right order. As I thought about it, I wrestled, I frankly wrestled for quite a few hours with how to put it in the right order. But you really got to look at the whole picture to get what we're saying here. So let's uh, define the kingdom. Now, some people actually criticize us for using too much scripture. I want to just preview today by saying I'm not going to use a ton of scripture as I go through these 12 definitions, because these definitions are based on all of scripture as we're going to see in chapters 3, 4, and 5, the next three weeks, as we're going to go through the Old Testament twice, using uh, the, the theme of covenant history the first time, and the theme of, of imagery of developing the kingdom the second time, and then we're going to spend at least one chapter on the New Testament going through the kingdom of God theme. So you'll get lots of scripture to back up these 12 definitions in the next three chapters. Has everyone got that? So... Definition number one, the kingdom of God is the reign. Look at, please follow on your notes. It's uh, Roman numeral three there. Uh, you, please, uh, you know, if you, if you read, the reason we do this, the reason I spend eight hours making these every Saturday is so that you'll read along with them 
and that uh, you'll because you'll get more if you both engage your eyes and your ears. So, uh, chapter three, Roman point n- number one. Hopefully, everyone everyone has that in front of them. In the back row, there you guys got one. Okay. Raise your hand if you don't have an outline in, in, in your lap looking at it, and we'll get you one. we got tons of them. Roman numeral three, 12 definitions, 12 defining statements that will form a collage about the meaning of the kingdom of God in Scripture. Number one, the kingdom of God is the reign or the government, the rulership, the domain or dominion of God. It is the sphere or realm in which his good and perfect will is willingly enacted. Not only as in as it will be in heaven and is in heaven, but on the earth now. Now, that phrase willingly inactive is quite important because of this. God owns and is completely sovereign over the whole earth. Therefore, when you watch the news, and uh, you see uh, Islamic brotherhoods taking over nations in the Middle East, and you see uh, the the Chinese government uh, collapsing uh, and destroying churches in China. When you see the northern Muslims of Nigeria uh, kill, uh, as they have recently done a lot of. Of course, our news media doesn't cover because it, it doesn't cover anything that's pro-Christian. But you see them burning churches and killing Christians during right in their worship services and the same sort of thing going on in Egypt. Jesus is still reigning. When the Romans killed the Christians for 250-some years before Constantine made Christianity legal, Jesus was reigning in their midst. And we, because we have, so, we have made everything in the New Testament about the modern and future things instead of seeing the context it was written in, we miss that Jesus is reigning in the midst of whatever tough thing you're going through right now. The key is to get willingly on the side of his reign. So as Caesar, as Caesar sought to stamp out the Christian church, the blood of those very martyrs became the seed of what caused the church to grow, and it caused the church to conquer the Roman Empire without ever shedding any blood except the blood of the martyrs. The Romans shed the blood. So understanding that God owns and is completely sovereign over all the earth, and therefore even his enemies, both human enemies such as political governments and uh, unscrupulous men, uh, abusers, and whoever else, even God's enemies ultimately do God's will. Now, that should give you great hope, because if you're really in Christ today, it's because you came to a point where you saw how lecherous you were, what, a, what an evil person you were. You finally understood the, the depth of the gospel. You may have been raised in it 40 years uh, 20 years, 60 years. My grandmother came to under, know Christ when she was 77 years old. And her whole life changed in her countenance, her personality, her character, her values, everything. At the age of 77. When we understand that even our sinful nature, his enemy, 
ultimately does his will because our sinful nature causes us to have a miserable life. I have one blessing I pronounce over backslidden people who won't repent and who won't uh, make Jesus Lord in reality, who continue to maybe stay on the outskirts of religion but never come through the real door of the cross. I just say, I love you so much, and I pray you're perfectly miserable in your sin. Uh, I, be, I pray you'll never f- that you'll never have the illusion of joy in anything other than Christ. So only recipients of his reconciling and empowering grace are freed to, re- to participate in his redeeming purposes. The Bible says God is opposed to the proud. He gives grace to the humble. So it's actually when we come to the end of our own control, like I haven't wanted to turn it all over to God. I, you know, we, I, we can't trust. We, maybe we have deep wounds, whatever psychological reason, but we can't let go and, and, and put our hand, really put ourselves in God's hands and stay there. God is loving so much that he'll allow everything in your life to continue to crash and continue to not work. And until you really get to that point where you're saying, okay, take me as I am. And I'm going to quit driving. I'm going to get in the back seat and uh, you let your Jesus drive through his word, through his spirit and through his church. And you send the right people in my life and everything like that. And I'm going to sit in the back seat and I'm going to shut up and keep my opinions to a minimum. <laughs> and I'm going to be take the posture of a learner. When you get there, you're, you're ready to start the Christian walk. That's, that's really what it, the kingdom of God is all about. Only recipients of his reconciling and empowering grace are freed to participate in his redemptive purposes. Thus, experience what Paul calls in Romans 1 and Romans 15, the obedience of faith, which should really be called the obedience of trust or following. That's what separates religion from reality. I went to church for 17 years, and I was religious, but I didn't, had not encountered Christ in reality. I was still driving, and I was keeping him at a distance, making sure he didn't interfere too much with my control and my plans of what I thought was right and happy and all this. That's the essence of the people of God versus the people of religion. Secondly, the kingdom of God is both present and future. It's not primarily heaven or the age to come, but it's a breaking into this present evil age. That's a phrase from Galatians 1.4, Paul speaking. Paul calls this world this present evil age. The kingdom of God is a breaking into this present evil age with the power, order, spirit, and reign that is lordship of the king now and on the earth. There's only two spheres or realms in this world. The, that Those people who are still like in Psalm 2 are taking their stand against the Lord and against his Christ, even though in most cases they don't even know what their values and priorities are. But they have thoughts like, well, everybody should believe how they believe and everybody should think how they want to think and everyone should worship the way they want to worship. And it's all this like me-centered relativism instead of God-centered reality and truth. 
The kingdom of heaven is a breaking into this present evil age of the reign and power of the king now and on the earth. Three, God is eternally purposed. Now, when you want to think about eternity, understand this. It's a hard concept for us, but eternity is not a long, 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 long time. Eternity is where God dwells, and it's outside and above the realm of time. He created the time, which in a sense is an illusion, but he created it for his redemptive purposes in our life. We live in a time-space world where we think time is everything. And in fact, it seems like the years are getting faster, right, as you get older. Some of the old guys know that. Because actually, mathematically, they are. Because when you're one, one year is your whole life. And when you're two, it's half your life. And with your, when you're 57, it's just a little bit longer than going to Wendy's. It's, you know, it's... It's because your only measuring point is from the is from your your start of your timeline. But God lived outside of time. And he does live outside of time. And the only place you can fellowship God is not in worrying over the mistakes you made in the past, as the Bible makes clear in lots of places, nor in some dreams and illusions about who you're going to be in the future but in the reality of your relationship with him here and now, because eternity only uh, encounters the time-space continuum in the present moment. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, Jesus said. Don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will worry for itself. Sufficient for the day is the evil thereof. Each day has enough troubles. Don't borrow from tomorrow's troubles. You can't even afford the rates is what Jesus is saying. Lots of people live, uh, you know, I, I've had people that I've been friends with and loved and cared for for years, but who struggle with worry. And I always, sometimes it's like, if you didn't have something to worry about, you'd be worried that you should be worried about something that you're forgetting to worry about. <laughs> but that there's nothing in that. That's what the whole point of Matthew 6, 19 through 34, right in again in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount is all about. God has, that's a little bit on eternity. God has eternally purposed to express his reign, that is his kingdom, through a nation or a city of people born of one regal head, one kingly head, into this present evil age where we're in a time and space world. Now, you're going to hear more about that when we, when we do a survey of what Old Testament covenantal history next in chapter 3. But God did, is not a radical individualist like Christ, both Catholic and Protestant Christians today are. God never intended just to, to come into your life for your sake. He loves you very much. And that's why he doesn't want to leave you centered in yourself. Fourthly, the Bible reveals that his premeditated plan was always from all eternity that his special treasure, that's a quote in quotes from Exodus 19.6 and from 1 Peter 2.9. Peter is quoting Moses. Uh, where was I? That, uh, his, that his special treasure, that is also a quote from the same scriptures, the people for his own possession, would willingly enter into his death so that in dying his death, they might be reborn of one regal head into new, his newness of resurrected life and enter now into his new kingdom creation. So actually, you need, according to Jesus, to be reborn. 
And you need to actually be reborn in a sense again and again. You're only reborn once, but you're reborn again and again and again. That's one of the mysteries of the kingdom. Every day, you have to live out your baptism. Every day, you have to live out the Eucharist. Every day, you have to live out the cross. You can only be born into Jesus as you embrace the daily Gethsemane's and thy wills be done instead of my will be done that God brings your way. And whenever I, God brings someone into my life that's kind of finally ready to get serious about God, it's inevitable. The first discussion, they always talk about how, gee, all my life I've been a control freak and it, it's all been about my will be done. And I just say, welcome to the human race. That's exactly what Genesis 3 tells us happened in the Garden of Eden. The serpent said, you'll be as God, and you'll determine for yourself what is good and evil. And that's what he came to save you from. Awesome. So, uh, in other words, there's, there's no true kingdom life on the wrong side of our daily cross, crosses. In Galatians 2.20, Paul said, it's no longer I who live. This is how he practically approached every day. It's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in and through me. And the life that I live in the flesh, in this body, I live by trust and following in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. And combining that with Romans 5, 10, that, that he delivered himself up for me and improved his love for us in that while we were actually enemies of the cross, which is what going to church every week and still running your own life really is. It's the essence of religion, but it's not repentance. And so the, the essence uh, is that he died for you while you were yet hostile to him, so that he might reconcile you through the blood of his cross and regenerate you to have a new nature born of Christ that says, I always do what that which is pleasing to the Father. That's what Christ always said. And if Christ is in you, you will have a growing desire, a true, a hunger and thirst for all righteousness. Lord, I want to be right with you. I want to please the Father like you did. I want to do your mission. I want to be where you are. I want to be a husband to my wife like Christ was to, and is to his church. I want to be a, a wife to my husband like the church is to Christ. I want to follow you wherever you go and be conformed to your image by being conformed to your death so that, as Paul said, as death works in me, so life might work in you. And it's on that other side of your daily crosses that you'll find the life. And many Christians never really get started there because no matter how much you philosophize about religion and crap like that, the, the gospel starts with repent. You have, to, you have to start with this message I'm saying, Lord, I've been a control freak. I, through hurts or fears or whatever, I've been rebelling against turning and trusting you and renouncing and stopping everything you call sin and choosing to do everything you call pursuing you and grace and unwrap the free gift of grace and, and assemble the parts and follow you wherever you go. Now, this is why uh, the gospel was foreshadowed in the Old Testament by circumcision 
which was replaced in the New Testament by both water baptism and the in communion or the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist. In the Old Testament, circumcision works a death at the point where new life comes out, <laughs> right? And where the where the new generation is 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 born. So that it always reminded the people of God that we must die first in order to to pass on his life into the next generations. In water baptism, we basically say, uh, if if you from a tradition that does infant baptism, uh, then your then your sponsors say, I do renounce Satan, and I renounce all his works, and I renounce uh, the sinful nature. I renounce my original sin. Not just the black mark, but the whole tendency to do my own thing. Oh, I, well, I started late, so I will probably be off schedule. We'll blame it on the ice instead of me. Okay, uh, that's that's what it. That's what that's why we remember his death until he comes. I have a great deal of of trouble with the the modern traditions that that only take the lord's supper once a month or once a year and that kind of nonsense the early church took it on the first day of the week the day of his resurrection always at a minimum they also took it from house to house in small groups and i encourage you to take communion together more often than sunday mornings um now this is this is uh, kind of a verse that explains what I was saying there. Luke 22, 25 through 26. You can also read the, the similar account, Matthew 23, 10 through 12. He said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who have authority are called benefactors. But it is not this way with you, but the one who is the greatest among you must become the youngest and the leader like the servant. Through, you know what? That's a great verse to read. But here's the th thing. Your spirit, your heart, your affections what you really want and lust after can only be changed by Christ so that you'd actually see yourself as a servant. Like Christ said, I, when, you, when the servant comes in from the fields, he doesn't gird himself and take care of himself first. First, he fixes dinner for his master, and he says, I'm only an unworthy servant. I've only done that which I ought. That's the reason Christ started the Last Supper that gave us this with washing his disciples' feet because the servant of the household washed the guest's feet when they came in in his time. And you have to let him wash you if you're going to have any part in him. It only, you know, what, what the kings of this world do, you know, I, I saw a very interesting PBS special just a few months back where they documented quite a few politicians, around 20 that you would know, who went to Washington primarily to get rich and become famous and to have power. And they were from both political parties equally. They did that on purpose. And that's, that's really what authority is all about in our culture. But God is saying, if you want to be a husband, if you want to own a business, if you want to pastor a church, gird yourself to serve. Answer that call at three in the morning. Spend time with that person who may not even 
be trying to hear what you're saying. Serve, serve, serve. And only God can work that as being the intention of your heart so that you actually come back and say, well, I'm not that big a deal. We still have a lot to die from when, say, we're the boss and we help certain people and, and we kind of walk away thinking, I sure hope they appreciate that I invested my time. And that, and I, you know, uh, not dead yet. It's like those cheese commercials. It isn't, isn't mature yet. Uh, <laughs> so, fifthly, God's predestined purpose has always been and remains to produce a kingdom of priests. Now, this is important. It's important for our Greek theoretical way of approaching Christianity today. God's predestined purpose has always been and remains to produce a kingdom of priests born and filled with and extending the manifest presence of his spirit. Not just theoretically saying we have his spirit because we have a nice atmosphere, which we had a nice atmosphere. The Lord bring it. Uh, but, uh, but, but because the real atmosphere is the power of the Holy Spirit manifested in our worship, in our praise, in, our, in the sacraments, and so forth. In such a way that, you know, John, Jesus said in John 3, 8, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound thereof, but you don't know where it's coming or where, it, or where it's going. So is everyone who's born of the Spirit. When the Spirit of God is moving in the people of God, the Bible makes clear that the natural-minded man cannot understand the things of the Spirit. The people at your shop will never know why you do what you do. In other words, Jesus is saying when you're a Christian, they won't know why you have a different attitude while you're slicing up freshness than everyone else, but they'll see the effect of it. And they see the effect of it in signs, wonders, healings, casting out demons, uh, manifest presence of God in in, in uh, worship, in reconciled relationships in the family, and so forth. When the kingdom comes in, you'll see the leaves of the tree. So God has always wanted to have a kingdom of priests. We are priests. Every Christian is a priest, born of, filled with, and extending the manifest presence of his spirit. Together, we are to be God's temple, built according to his pattern, and overflowing with his glory in demonstrable ways. One of the, you know, a friend of mine who's from a certain denomination <laughs> told me on the phone, when I got my uh, pastoral credentials this year, I threw them in the wastebasket because I realized that we in our particular denomination, most of what we do is based on traditions of men and modern marketing ideas rather than scripture. There is a pattern and a model for what the church is supposed to be. And that pattern and model includes a discipling community. Who's discipling you? Who are you uh, getting prepared to disciple? If you're called to follow Jesus, you're called to be a fisher of men, and you're called to be studying and embracing your crosses and growing in character so that you can become the discipler. That's the purpose of being a disciple and you're called to do this in a way that is manifestly and powerfully filled with the anointing of the Holy Spirit. What can they see through of God, through uh, of God's Spirit through us? Is a fair question to always be asking ourselves. 
See, they, they accused Jesus of saying, of casting out demons by Beelzebub. And he said, wait a minute. You, you know, if you're going to walk with Christ, you're going to get accused. Even from people you, that you're discipling, that you love, you follow, your kids, whatever. You're going to get accused. But Jesus said, if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then know that the kingdom of God has come in your midst. You can't, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. People always argue, is this way to do it, that way to do it, or whatever. You know what? I want to look for someone who, inside their heart, the Lordship of Jesus Christ is really passionate for them. Now, uh, I have a little note there just above Matthew 12, 27. It says, combine Exodus 40. Here, here's, I'm going to do this quick. Moses was told in Exodus 20, verse 8, 9, and 25, if you're taking notes, Exodus 25, I'm sorry, 8, 9, and 25. Wait, no, Exodus 20, 8, 9, and 25. i got to remember my scriptures. He was told to make sure that he built the tabernacle, which is a foreshadowing of the church, exactly according to the pattern that Christ had given him on the mountain. Right? Solomon was told by David to build the, the, the stone temple exactly as the pattern God had given David. Solomon was to build it exactly that way. Now, the scripture makes a great deal in both cases of how they built everything exactly as the Lord had commanded. Not modern marketing ideas, not modern adaptations of the essential message, but exactly as the pattern, which in fact is the true what's called apostolic succession. And so as they, as they did this, in both cases, the scripture records that they were dedicating the structure to the Lord after they had built it according to the model. And the glory of God filled it so much that the priest couldn't even minister. They had to get out because it was too much glory of God. Now, throw that idea in to Hebrews 7, 22, 8, 6, 12, 24. I'm going across the page in a logical progression that everything... The, the, the writer of Hebrews talks about Jesus and Moses and David and all these scriptures, that they made everything according to the pattern. Throw that in with the idea, uh, Hebrews 7, again, 8, these three scriptures. Uh, the three scriptures there in Hebrews talk about how in Christ, the church has a better covenant. And Ephesians 2, 19 through 22 tells us that the church is now the temple of the Holy Spirit, the tabernacle of God. And so what I am arguing for, the reason we have the Friday night worship that we have is baby steps and stepping stones to bringing natural-minded people out into the real worship of God as it's presented in the Bible, not how we want to worship, but how God commands us to worship him much different frame of reference, so that we will be set free to be who we were always meant to be, 
which is priests ministering in the temple in such a way that we are overwhelmed by the glory of God. And people have to start getting on their faces and repenting and, and crying out to God, and, and people's lives are changed. When you worship in spirit and truth as Moses worshiped, his faith was so filled with the glory of God that he used to have to put a veil over his face. Believe me, when you start touching God in true worship and praise, you will change and change and change and change. But it'll be different than the humanistic views of change that you've been brainwashed in all your life, that you can get do whatever you want to do. The, that's what the Bible calls slavery. What the Bible calls freedom is the freedom to start being who you were recreated in Christ to be all along. And you actually start living a life in harmony with your purpose in his character and his attitudes and his motivations and everything that was troubling you starts getting healed and delivered and, and taken out of your life through the death of his cross and the rebirth of his resurrection. So God is always predestined to have a kingdom of priests filled with his spirit. And that's why Paul talks about how he preached the gospel throughout Rome in the power of signs and wonders. Part of our problem is we don't get out there and, and speak the gospel to everyone, and that's where God wants to do the signs and wonders. Now, I've seen some amazing miracles in my Christian life, two of which I were the healing of people of Tourette syndrome in an instantaneous deliverance and many others that I've shared on other occasions and I don't have enough time to share today. But this kind of reality needs to be normal Christianity. It's not, it's not normal Christianity because of, of some things that were brought into the church at the Reformation and because, more importantly, the Enlightenment and, its, and the, the Renaissance and Enlightenment ideas that were anti-supernatural. But believe me, biblically, it's normal Christianity. Sixth point, ultimately, all of God's actions, movements, works, and dealings are designed to produce that nation and work in and through it to subdue the entire earth and manifest his glory. This involves the reproduction of children born, that is, born of his spirit. Nothing's more wonderful than when your own natural children become your spiritual sons and daughters, but also you're, you're called to birth other spiritual sons and daughters. The, the reproduction of children born of his spirit and producing his character, fruit, and works. Whenever God calls an individual, it's always for this larger corporate purpose. Now, there arose in the last 150 years in, in lots of evangelical circles this kind of narcissistic idea, you have a call of God on your life. And that call of God on your life is supposed to flatter your iniquity in your flesh, and I'm supposed to pr uh, pursue becoming someone great. Well, that's true as long as you filter it through the cross of Jesus Christ and what he talks about what true greatness is. As long as he sanctifies you out of such selfish ambition and narcissistic goals so that you are glad to be a drink offering with your life poured out for the lowliest of people. What, what really, you know, there's if you haven't seen a movie called Network, you need to see it. Uh, but... <laughs> But there's a speech in which uh, 
I forget the character's name. She's breaking up with Diana and, and, uh, and Max is breaking up with Diana and he says, you are television, Diana. And then he goes on to say, everything that you and the, and the uh, institution of television touch is totally destroyed. It's interesting. I know a number of Christian leaders who decided not to go on to Christian television back in the 70s. And what's kind of interesting about the whole thing is that especially in Protestant circles and certain TV station, it's all become about selfish ambition and making a name for yourself and my agenda uh, and the money I need to keep my program rolling. Listen to me carefully. I'm not an unserious guy that doesn't study and, and want to do things for God, but I'd rather pastor some inner city church of 40 people than to have that in my spirit. That is the spirit of Babel. Let us make a name for ourselves. And the self-promoting and the uh, and the, all of that, that that has come into the church through that, is nothing other than the same spirit that's working in of iniquity that's worked in fallen man since Genesis 3 right through the Tower of Babel and on and through the Romans and everyone else. When it, our life is to be poured out, I, there's a line in the, one of the Rambo movies that I like where he goes, he's tell, telling, he goes, the reason they use me for these things is I'm expendable. I'm suggesting to you, if you haven't come to a real attitude that you're expendable, there's more growth for you yet in God. Help us, God, to, to consider ourselves expendable. I want to be used, <laughs> abused, misjudged in everything in the name of Christ. Uh, we have to be of no account. Seventhly, uh, we'll probably stop here because we're way past time. The triune God predestined, foreknew, and ordained that his holy covenant people would always war against opposition. The opponents would include Satan, his angels, and demons, and this is very important, the peoples, nations, and rulers of this age who persecute his people. Now, a major theme of the kingdom of God and the, of the whole Bible has been what St. Augustine's great work was about, the city of God. De Civitas Dei in the uh, Latin. It, he postulated that the city of God is opposed to the city of man, and the, the king of, of kings is opposed to the kings, the rulers and the kings of this earth. And there are two, always two cities. There is the, the church is supposed to be a city within the city with a different king and a different mayor and a different everything a different spirit and attitude and values and so forth. And it will, it is and always will be, if there aren't people opposing you, then you really haven't got cl close to the king yet because God has always ordained that the people of this age persecute the, pe the people of God. Think, let's let's. I'm just going to end by saying a few of those things, and we're going to be about ten minutes behind schedule. But it, believe me, this is worth it. Uh, let me just humbly say, by God's grace, it's worth it. It's worth it. Cain killed Abel. Now, contrary to most modern sociology classes at the university, it wasn't because of overcrowding. Really, there was plenty of space left. 
You could just drive through Iowa and see the cornfields and you'll know that. So the problem was that when Adam and Eve sinned, something was birthed into the heart of man that called modern psychology, whereby we want to self-actualize and promote ourselves and be our own gods. And we know there's guilt and shame in that. So we sew fig leaves together to cover our nakedness, which is the universal symbol in the ancient literature of, of shame. But God came down and gave them animal skins, which means there's no forgiveness or atonement or covering of your shame without the shedding of blood. That was a foreshadowing of Christ. The first we'll see as we go through the next, next chapter three, two weeks from now, that, that the proto-evangelium is uh, Genesis 3.15. God began to preach the gospel right then. Almost all theologians who take the Bible seriously would agree that actually Adam and Eve were reconciled to God. And they passed the things of God down to their children. But Cain chose to bring the works of his own hands, the fruit of the ground, his own labors. And Abel brought the blood of animals that, that God had raised. And right from that point, the, the people of darkness have always opposed the people of light. Okay, and that goes all the way through the Bible, and we'll start by, by doing that next week. We'll talk about Shem, Abraham, Israel, uh, Jesus' prediction that, that those who are godly will be persecuted, the Roman Empire, etc. There have always been, you know, Daniel in Babylon, Esther. Uh, the, the Bible is full of, of accounts of the people of darkness trying to stop the people of light. That's why Pharaoh tried to kill all the firstborn of Egypt, as Herod did. And it will always be the one who God sovereignly allows to get away that will, that will restore his purposes and continue his purposes. Now, obviously, we got started about 15 or 20 minutes late because so many people had trouble with the ice. And uh, uh, so we're, we're probably about we're 15 minutes behind schedule. We will pick up on the backside of Chapter 2 and make it Chapter 2B next week. And um, we will start again in approximately 10 minutes, which will keep us about 15 minutes behind schedule.